What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Rethinking Christianity. On today's episode, I interview Pete Enns. Pete is an author, a podcaster, uh, a content creator. Uh, He's a teacher. Um, He's a number of different things. Uh, He's one of my favorite authors, uh, one of my favorite thinkers, and someone that has really helped me in my faith through the books that he's put out, through the interviews that he does. And this interview particularly, we talk about the Bible, we talk about doubt and faith, and I found it to be really helpful for me in uh, getting some answers to some questions that I've always wanted to ask him. And so uh, this interview was really fun for me as Pete is someone that I really look up to and someone that I really find fascinating and interesting in the way he presents the Bible and just Christianity as a whole. And so um, without saying anything else or giving anything else away, um, I hope that you enjoy this episode uh, and let's get into it. Here is the interview with Pete Enns. Pete, thank you for coming on uh, Rethinking Christianity. Um, for those of you that may not be familiar with Pete, he is an author, a teacher. You, you teach at Eastern School? What, what is Eastern, Eastern University, Eastern yeah, University. which is outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay, cool. And so Pete, Pete writes, teaches. He does a podcast called The Bible for Normal People. Um, a lot of really good stuff. So thank you so much for coming on. I'm super excited just to get the kind of talk about the Bible and doubt and some different uh, topics of how the Bible actually works and and, and those things. Just little things like that. Huh? Like yeah, nothing little, super no, serious. No brainer, kind of just obvious stuff. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. So um, obviously you have an interest in the Bible, so you've kind of dedicated your life to it in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I would love to just hear kind of like, when did you begin that journey uh, and become interested in the Bible? Because, I, you know, I think for everyone, it kind of like evolves over time. But when did that kind of yeah. start for you? Yeah, I mean, I can pinpoint it pretty much. Uh, it was after I graduated uh, college, actually. I went to a Christian college in Pennsylvania, and which was great. But um, I didn't really have like a, a, a burning personal interest in reading the Bible or anything like that. It was just something you did. But it was after uh, after I graduated college, uh, long story short, I hung out with a couple of friends of mine who one was one went to a fundamentalist Christian college and another went to a state university who was a uh, in an atheistic philosophy major and always a friends. But they those two started talking about things in the detail that I didn't understand. And that made me realize that, you know, I, I have this thing that I say I believe and I don't even know what I'm talking about. That got me into reading a lot, including the Bible. And the more I read the Bible, the more I became interested in trying to make sense of it, you know, because uh, some people are, are attracted to things like theology or church history or philosophy or things like that. I was just attracted to the texts and what they meant. And, um, you know, these questions that have been driving me for, I don't know, 30, 40 years now, what is the Bible and what do you do with it? And and the, that those are still things that fascinate me. So it came from a need to actually read the thing that I said I believed in. And that started down a road of like, then reading what other people say about it. And then questions start coming up and you start learning. And, and that's sort of how it went. Cool. That's awesome. Did you ever think that you'd be teaching in the kind of format that you're doing it now? I guess teaching as a professor and like just and writing about it. Not at first. No, no, not. I mean, not at first. I, that didn't dawn on me until 
I mean, I went to I went to college. Then I took about three years in between college. Then I went to seminary, and I was in seminary for four years. And I went in thinking I might be doing some church work or something, but it was really within a couple of years when I realized I just like studying this stuff. I just like reading about it and trying to understand it. And so that that did evolve, you know, um, over a few years. And then, you know, halfway through seminary is when I made the decision to focus on Old Testament in graduate school. I mean, you know, I wasn't in graduate school yet. I was still finishing up seminary. But I, I said I wanted to go to graduate school to study the Old Testament because uh, one of my professors, he is this being videoed, by the way? Are we sure? Yeah, this video? yeah, it is. Okay, yeah. So I can I can get at my Bible. Yeah, and you look great. This. You're good. <laughs> okay, that's fine. I really don't care. But uh, one of my professors who since died, he took out the Bible and he held it in front of us. And he said, basically, here's your Bible. Um, this much of it is Old Testament. This much of it is New Testament. So you better figure out what you're going to do with this part of it, right? And that just intrigued me because that's the, that's the part that... Um, it's so big and so unwieldy and it's complicated and it's all messed up. And then there's weird stuff in it. So that's, it got me thinking like, I would like to understand how the old Testament folds into the Christian faith gotcha. when it doesn't have much to do with it, you know, at least in its original context. So that's sort of what drove me into that. And um, I haven't looked back since. And then in graduate school, my PhD was, broadly in what they call ancient Near Eastern studies, where Old Testament or Hebrew Bible is part of that. And then within that, uh, you can focus on different areas. And I happen to focus on early Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament, which is early Jewish means like a couple hundred years before Christ until maybe like the first century, which also happens to correspond to the New Testament period. So that got me into how Jewish writers handled the Old Testament, including people like Paul and Matthew and John and people like that. So that got me into really looking at the whole Christian canon while I was in, in, uh, in graduate school. That's awesome. Yeah, that was that was my next question. It was like, why the Old Testament? Because it definitely seems like that is the portion of the Bible that gets kind of ignored. We like the we like the New Testament and all that, but the Old Testament people don't really want to deal with it. Or in my experience, the answers that are given are not very adequate to uh, resolve, you know, some of the things that are kind of troublesome in the Old Testament, so to speak. It comes sort of like a storybook almost, like Aesop's Fables, and here's this story. This is the the moral of the story. But, uh, you know, one thing I learned in seminary, which I've never let go of, is the idea of how the Old Testament is itself a big it's a narrative. It's a story. It's got movement. It's got plot. And it's filled with like historical backgrounds and, and contexts. And to reduce that to sort of a moral lesson book is, I think, really disrespectful of what was compiled, you know, 2,500 or so years ago. And so it, it has to be more than that. But yet that's that's how people tend to, not everybody, but I think that, you know, the, the general Christian world, that's how you teach your kid's Bible. Yeah. Let's look at the story of Jonah, the story of Adam and Eve. What's the moral of the story? Don't be like this. And those stories were not written for those reasons. They were written as part of Israel's whole way of looking at itself. And each one of those stories has a piece among many, many other pieces. And you can't just take one and sort of lift it out. 
and make it into a story that you can, you know, tell five-year-olds, you know, this is why you don't obey, disobey your parents or something. It's, it's actually, um, it's reducing the Bible into something that is, um, frankly, for me, not that interesting. Yeah. There's a lot more going, there are a lot more challenges in the Bible um, and difficulties, like you mentioned, and just weird stuff. And also a lot of deep thinking that goes on in that book. So all that kind of stuff really drove me to it. Yeah, I found that, you know, so I did I did my undergrad in, in some similar stuff, and I'm working on a MA in biblical studies uh, right now. And what I've kind of learned is growing up, so my mom would read the, the storybook Bible to me, and I would learn the stories in this very childish way. It's like, how can you make the story of God literally killing everybody? into a children's story. And so it was just, you know, so what I've kind of discovered for myself personally is like, as I've kind of like studied and learned more of the background, I realized how much I was in the, 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 not the deep end, so to speak, there's so much more to it, you know, when you begin to look at the background and, and all those things. And so, you know, what I'd like to kind of ask is, did you find that through those studies that that kind of like, impacted your faith in a way where you had to like deal with any of the, like, I guess for a lot of people that grow up in a very different um, background or viewpoint of the Bible that doesn't deal with a lot of those things. It's more of like, okay, here's the text and here's the Bible. This is how it applies to your life. And then Mm -hmm. for me personally, when I was confronted with these like issues within the Bible, I didn't really know what to do with it. And it did affect my faith. And in some ways there were times of doubt and things like that, but did you have any kind of moments you know, during your school that where that kind of challenged your, your faith? Yeah, all the time. I mean, and I would say just not just that, but just life challenges you all the time too. So it's get used to it. You know, it's just life is not smooth and easy, but yeah, definitely. I think there's a difference between reading the Bible devotionally and reading the Bible with an eye toward history which is things like, you know, what era of world history are we in now when we talk about David or something like that? Or, you know, who's writing this and when is this person writing it? What's happening in his world? And how does that help us understand these texts in terms of what they would have meant to those who are reading them or hearing them for the first time? That's a historical kind of reading. And then there is a more devotional kind of reading. And I think those two things are are fine to be held separate. I mean, I know many people who, who read the Bible devotionally, they're not interested in historical questions and they don't have to be. I think to me, the the it gets messy though when uh people have an approach to the Bible that they think is historical, but it winds up really not being that rooted in history. And then you find out there are other ways of looking at it from a historical point of view. I think those are the kinds of people who wind up having like some crises of faith because you mean this was written then and not at this other point in time, or you mean these two stories, they don't really, they seem to be contradicting each other and there are reasons for that historically, but you know, that's, many people are not taught to read the Bible historically with those kinds of things in mind, if that makes any sense. So it's, you know, I, I think for me, I, um, I can't say that I had a real crisis of faith thinking about those things, but it definitely challenged my faith and, and how I think about 
what God is like, what the Bible is, you know, pretty basic questions would be coming to mind. And I've since really learned that we should all have those questions come to mind now and then, you know, it's just, that's part of growing, I think, in faith is to be deeply, deeply challenged and then see how you come through at the other side. Yeah. Yeah. I would say for myself, it's been a, you know, kind of like a almost refreshing in a way where it's, you know, I don't have to settle for just the simplistic reading of the scriptures or the Bible that was presented to me that doesn't make sense. And so it's like this continual journey of like rediscovering and relearning and rethinking through, you know, those things that you kind of mentioned. So that's what, that's what I've kind of had to like hold on to is like, okay, it it doesn't have to be this way that it's been presented. Uh, And, you know, so your book, one of your more recent books, I know you put out uh, some stuff with the the exit you put out the Exodus for normal people mm-hmm. the Genesis for normal people. What I'd like to talk about is the title "How the Bible Actually Works." Okay. Uh, what a bold title! Um, and so I, I typed it. I had to type it out because I wouldn't remember all of it. Uh, the subtitle. So the subtitle of your most recent book, how the, "How the Bible Actually Works," is in which I explain how an ancient, ambiguous, and diverse book leads us to wisdom rather than answers and why that's really great news. And so I'd like to ask a question, what does it mean that an ancient book can lead us to wisdom and not answers? Yeah. Um, First of all, just a word on the title. It's meant to be a little bit tongue in cheek, how the Bible actually works. And um, I don't claim to have the corner on the market of that. I think that there are ways of reading it that don't work very well. And this is sort of my way of putting big pieces together. So um, yeah, your question, it gets to really the heart of it all for me in the book, and that is the way the Bible is sort of, the way it comes at you, right, is a book that's very ancient. And it is, it's, you know, it's a very, very old book. It's also ambiguous, which is why people are constantly debating what things mean. But the Bible is surprisingly not a clear book. And people right now saying, what do you mean it's not clear? You know, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, well, what does that mean? Like, how do you actually do that? That's ambiguous. And much of the history of Christianity and Judaism is trying to work out, well, what does that mean? And in what situations, what does love look here, look like here? What does it look like there? But the Bible is also very diverse. And um, to me, that's, I found that to be the most troubling thing for some people to get a handle on that the Bible really does give different perspectives on things, whether it's, you know, oftentimes it's different perspectives on actually what God is like, which is, can be a very, like a new kind of idea for people. But see those things, the way the Bible seems to be presented to us, it doesn't work very well as a rule book or sort of what I call an owner's manual approach. You know, here it is, do this and you're fine. The Bible always makes you think. It makes you really stop and say, do I understand what's being said here? Um, How would they have heard about it? How would they have heard this back then? And what does that mean for today? What does it mean for me and for the world that I live in? And the Bible does not answer those questions for us. We have to sort of live into that and basically develop wisdom in how we approach life within this tradition, which has this sacred text. You know, I, I do use the example of Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. 
I think it's in that book, right? Um, uh, uh, answer, don't answer a fool according to his folly or answer a fool according to his folly. Two opposite things to do right next to each other. And they're both right. They contradict each other, technically speaking, because it gives opposite advice. You know, Don't answer them because if you do, be like them yourself. You're going down to their level. Or yes, definitely answer them because if you don't, they're going to think they're smart and they need to be put in their place. There are times when we have to let it go and not get involved. There are times when we have to put people in their place. And it takes wisdom to know which of those things you need to do. And I think right there in Proverbs, two Proverbs right in a row, is almost a principle for how the Bible as a whole works. It's meant to be understood and then patiently, I put it this way, brought into conversation for a time like ours, which the biblical writers never anticipated. We live in a different time and place and different things are happening. And I don't expect the Bible to comment on climate control, you know, but we have to think about what to do about this. So, so that, that's to me, that's why it's wisdom. It doesn't tell you what to do, but it just does what it does in its own ancient way, in its own diverse way. And it gives us almost, I'll put it this way, it almost gives us permission to say, well, I need to be thinking here too just like these biblical writers think. Yeah. And I think a lot of times, like what you just mentioned, like I need to be thinking here too, because I think a lot of people, you know, what I've grown up, I grew up in, you know, Southern Baptist church and I'm thankful for some of those things, but other things such as the, the idea of like the Bible said it, it meant it must be true. So that kind of attitude is just like, well, what what do we do with that? And so I Mm -hmm. I think that that's kind of like how the Bible is presented to a lot of people. And I think for the majority of people, and I don't think that, one, I don't think that's very compelling for many people because most people want to think and they're they're wrestling with different things. Right, they are. Um, yeah. But do you feel like that that underval that that presentation of the Bible undervalues what it actually is? I think it does because I mean, I'm, people say this a lot, and I say it too. You know, the Bible says, and you know, there's a story of a professor who had a student like that, and. He said to him, okay, well, listen, the Bible says, just open it up and just look at it. Don't say anything. And after five minutes of doing that, the professor says, well, what's the Bible saying? It doesn't speak. The Bible doesn't speak. We interpret. And that's the thing. And if we simply say, well, the Bible says, it does all the heavy lifting for us. You mean we don't have to, like, try to understand it or interpret it for our day? I think that's the problem. That devalues the Bible. And if you look at the history of Judaism and Christianity, both of these traditions are largely exercises in trying to understand this text and say, what does it mean for us here and now? And some people say, again, that this, well, I don't interpret the Bible, I just read it. No, but we all interpret it. I mean, whether you realize it or not, we're all reading it through lenses. We're all reading it. You know, if somebody says, don't interpret it, just read it literally. Well, to read it literally is an interpretive strategy. It is, it is a, a way of reading it. And there are many people who say, well, there's things in the Bible you shouldn't really take literally. And how can you take something literally when there are two different points of view expressed in the Gospels or in parts of the Old Testament, right? So I think the Bible forces us into this place of owning it for ourselves, of taking the responsibility 
what I call in this book, the sacred responsibility of trying to employ wisdom in how we read this text and how we apply it for today. Yeah, for sure. I, sometimes I like to mess with people. They'll ask me, and I believe this is the right passage of scripture, but they'll ask me what my favorite Bible verse is. And I'll be like, well, it's Psalm 137.9. So blessed is he who bashes the little ones against the rocks. I believe that's the right one. And they're always, some people are like, wait, that's in the Bible. And I'm like, yeah. yeah, it's in there. And along with a lot of other things that if you just take literally and you just view it without thinking, you can mm-hmm. do a lot with it that, and, right. and many people have done a lot of wrong with the Bible, with that sure. viewpoint. Um, right. And so that's kind of, you know, that perspective and that kind of approach, I, I agree. I think it undervalues the Bible. And I, I think it doesn't, you know, respect what they were trying to communicate in that time period and what they wanted to say about mm-hmm. God, about uh, other cultures, about, you know, how they experience God right. and that journey of faith. Yeah. Um, so. And trying to understand, I, I think you, you you said it very well. To understand how they experienced God, that's really valuable to do, and how that made sense in their context and their world. But what what if you move away from that world and into other contexts? People experience God differently, and that's not just like a modern day ancient thing. That's happening within the pages of the Bible itself, within the pages of the Old Testament. You have people experiencing God in ways that maybe people in previous generations and previous situations might not have experienced God that way. And that's why, I mean, the Bible is just shouting at us, you can't use me as a rule book. You have to, you don't get off that easy. You have to take the responsibility of studying, of reading, of talking with others about it in community, being very humble as you approach this and trying to see how or if at all, some things connect with the world we live in. And guess what? People are going to have different opinions on that. Because if there's anything else in the history of Judaism and Christianity, it's that people differ in their opinions. And to try to make it all about one group that gets it all right yeah. is a little naive. And it's, it can be pretty dangerous, too. Yeah, I you know, I've recently been studying just like some different, like some of the stuff you mentioned earlier about, you know, the intertestamental period in, in Judaism. Uh, and even just the like differences of like belief through that period of like, you know, we should follow the law this way or this way. And so it's just kind of this interesting thing where, you know, you don't get that from just like reading the Bible and reading the passage. But it's this continual thing that's occurring throughout, you know, the history of the scriptures um, that I guess we're not often aware of. But right. definitely, and, definitely there, and especially if you remember. Again, you know, if we think, okay, God wrote the Bible. I don't think anybody actually really thinks that, but they'll say God inspired the Bible, which is fine. But the thing is that the people that are inspired lived centuries and centuries apart, you know. And in the Old Testament, you have probably, depending on who you ask, but let's say roughly about a thousand years between its earliest writings to its last writings. You're going to, stuff happens in the thousand years, right? Where people's views change and, you know, their perspectives are altered for very good reasons, you know, and that is such an important thing to keep in mind. That explains why you have later books that talk about God differently than earlier books do, right? Yeah. That's part of the, that's part of the nature of the Bible, and to dismiss that 
it eventually runs you into some problems because you'll keep seeing it. You know, from the very beginning of the Bible, you start seeing tensions. And the question is, how do we live with those tensions? How do we explain them? How do we live with them? Rather than sort of explaining them away, yeah. which happens too often. And that yeah. at the end of the day, that doesn't help anybody. Yeah. And, you know, to kind of go off of like that idea of like people definitely try to explain things away um, instead of just being sometimes just being OK with what it is. But um, I'd like to ask. So so something that I've I've had conversations with people when this kind of conversation about the Bible comes up, um, people take a very defensive you know approach to the Bible. Um, and I don't think it needs to be defended, but, you know, what I've had, the conversations I've had with the people is around the idea of reading the Bible literally. Uh, and the, usually the rebuttal is, well, if it's not all hundred percent true, then I can't trust any of it. Uh, mm-hmm. and so I would just like, what, you know, if any of it's not true, I can't trust any of it. What is your kind of risk? What would your response to that be? Well, I think there is an assumption there that true means historical and they may not be the case. I mean, you can tell something, you can tell a true thing through fiction, right? I mean, that happens in modern literature all the time. People use fiction to say something very substantive. So um, I, I think it's the, it's wedding together historical things with it being true and if you question anything historically, then the whole thing goes. Yeah. And I'd say that's a nice theory until you start reading the Bible. And then you come up with things that people have always noticed since the very beginning of the Bible, which is there are clearly different perspectives that are fundamentally incompatible at some point. And you have to decide what do you do with that? Because that, that premise you know, if any part of it falters is untrue, then the whole thing could be thrown out. Yeah, that's a problem. I mean, even even like the rather obvious point, if I can, I don't mean that to be belligerent. I'm just saying it is a rather obvious point that there are different genres of literature in the Bible itself. I don't expect a psalm to work the same way as, say, Second Kings. Yeah. You know, I don't expect Jonah to work the same way as Isaiah. You know, those are actually different types of literature. And and a lot of this really has to do with recognizing the kind of literature that we're reading in a particular book and working with it according to, you know, you don't read the sports page like you read the comics. You don't read an editorial like you read a headline in a newspaper, right? They're different genres. The Bible has that too in spades. And and um, you can't avoid those genre questions by simply saying it's the Word of God. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it's it's the Word of God made up of many genres written by different people from different times, different perspectives. Yeah. You can never, never avoid the literary and authorial dimension of the Bible simply by saying it's God's Word. And if it doesn't work the way I think it should work, then we throw the whole thing out. Well, maybe your way of thinking about it's wrong. Just allow that as a possibility, right? That maybe you're limiting the Bible for no good reason rather than reading it and letting letting what the Bible is sort of surface come to, come to the surface out of that act of reading. And that, to me, is a very refreshing and enriching thing. It just takes a lot of time. You can't fit it in a bumper sticker or a meme. It just It just takes time to come to terms with the Bible and how it works. Yeah, I would 100% agree. And that's kind of, 
what I had to kind of come to the the place of just being okay. Like maybe I'm wrong and, and being okay with that. And, and yeah. just, it opened new doors in my faith. Like it opened new viewpoints and it opened a new way of approaching the mm-hmm. Bible and my relationship with God and what it means to follow Jesus and, and just so many other different things. Um, so, so what do you think, this may be an obvious question, but, um, I think it's important. What, what do you think makes people so hesitant in like changing or being challenged and how they read the Bible or that idea that, that statement of, well, maybe I'm wrong. Well, I, I think it's, I mean, I imagine there are different angles and answers to that question, but the, the answer that I've found to be true very, very often is that, you know, our faith gives us um, sort of like scaffolding for our our lives to make sense, right? It's 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 um, our faith creates like a, a life narrative for us where we know what's right, we know what's wrong, this and that. And for many Christians, part of that narrative is just the Bible and how the Bible works. So you begin questioning the Bible and the whole thing starts falling apart. The thing that used to give me, the thing that I never questioned that made sense of all of the universe, literally that makes sense of everything. Once you start pecking at that, then people get nervous because they want, who doesn't want this? I want this coherence in their existence. They want to have answers to the big questions of life. What happens to you after you die? You know, is there good and is there bad? Um, Does God exist? You know, what about world religions? All that kind of stuff. People want answers to questions of meaning, right? And a religious faith gives us those answers. So if you tell people, well, your, your faith has problems because you're thinking about the Bible or this or that in ways that the Bible itself doesn't allow, right? And people will react, I think, very strongly to that, and they'll fight to the hilt to keep their life narrative together. And I don't blame them. I mean, I, I like things to make sense, too. Yeah. But the question is whether that is then really faith in God or it's faith in the answers that you have. And mm. yes. that's why it's a very difficult thing to let go of that need to have it all together and to say, I choose to trust God anyway, even when things don't make sense to me. And for those of you, you know, listening who, for whom this is a, a weird, wild kind of idea, I can just tell you, it's, it's very liberating to take the pressure off of myself to be omniscient and just say, I just have to learn to trust God amid all these things I don't understand. And that's a very normal approach to faith in the Bible itself, but also just in the history of the church. Do you feel like that the the authors or the people writing the Bible were much better at that approach than we are today? I think some were. Yeah. I think I think some writers, um, you know, particularly in the Old Testament, there are places where there's a real black and white, what they're calling now a dualistic view of reality, where if you obey, God will reward you. If you disobey, God will punish you. And then you have Jesus talking to people like in the Gospel of John and uh, 
you know, the man born blind, who sinned here as parents? You know, why did God do this to them? And Jesus goes, that doesn't explain this, you know? So you have these movements within the Bible. Um, but so, I mean, I think some, some parts of the Bible handle the issue of doubt and uncertainty differently than others, you know? And my favorite books like Job and Ecclesiastes yeah. do a really good job of, of owning the fact that life is not smooth and you can even go into despair. Like some Psalms do that too. A good number of what they call lament Psalms do the same kind of thing. So um, I, I think the Bible itself is sort of a mixed bag, you know? Um, and that's okay, you know, because it kind of makes sense. It makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it makes the, it's the way life works. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, I've read you've kind of somewhere. I think I read it that you wrote um, approaching the Bible with a lens of curiosity. Um, mm-hmm. Can you kind of explain what that? What does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah. yeah, it sounds like something I'd say. I'm trying to think of where I said <laughs> it, but um, I think looking to the Bible with the the idea that you can actually ask questions of the Bible and even interrogate the Bible. And again, that's something that is, you find this maybe a little bit more in the Jewish tradition than the Christian tradition of actually like debating God, like some Psalms do, like Job does, like Ecclesiastes does, right? They debate God. And to me, that's part of curiosity. It's, you know, I, I want to approach my life of faith, not thinking do I have all the answers? And if not, how quickly can I get them? That's a defensive um, wall building, I think, kind of faith. The curious faith wants to build bridges and to see what other surprise is God going to give me in life that shows me that God is beyond my understanding and to be curious about that. And that's very threatening, again, because it doesn't give us the closed story, like like a fortress almost, right? It doesn't keep us protected. It's actually tearing the walls down and saying, you've got to go out and walk. And uh, that's a difficult move, I know, for a lot of people to make, but I think it's an important one. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, this leads me to so the question of where does, um, where does Jesus come in in all this for you? What does, what does following Jesus look like, uh, you know, kind of in the midst of that? this kind of questioning of the Bible, because we get our main information about him from the very book that we are kind of questioning. And so I think that's another question that people have asked me is, well, Jesus, he, it's written that he quotes the old Testament. And if uh, Jesus is the son of God, then, you know, is he, can he, can he be the son of God and be wrong at the same time if those things that he was quoting didn't happen? And so, Those are questions I get asked. Big question there. And I think that almost gets at the heart of it for a lot of people. And I I definitely get it. I mean, I don't, I don't minimize that problem at all. Um, I'm still processing and thinking through a lot of that stuff myself. Um, But without any panic, it's more a curiosity for me in a good sense. I'm trying to understand and put pieces together. And um, I, you know, Jesus certainly quotes the old Testament. Right. And, the question is, how does he quote it? Or how do the gospel writers quote it? See, that, that's the thing is that, you know, I know Jesus is in the Bible, but there are four versions of Jesus and they're not always compatible, right? So that gets us right away into the very, very old question of Jesus, but also 
the perspective of the gospel writers and what they understand and how they put things. And, and things don't always go together very nicely. So that right away makes it more complicated. Well, Jesus does this. Well, the question is, which Jesus are we talking about here? And that's not a side issue. That's not just a thing to throw in there to sort of cause trouble. That's the very kind of thing that a careful reading of the Bible, that's the kind of question that comes up. Yeah. Um, and the thing, too, is, you know, this is the thing that I think is, again, hard to maybe see it first, but after thinking about it might help. Um, and this is what my book, Inspiration and Incarnation, was about that I wrote in 2005. The, um, we have to grapple with the humanity of Jesus. And being fully human has implications for how you think about Jesus. Well, he was fully human, but without sin. Okay, but could he have been wrong? Well, I said without sin, is it sinful to be wrong? <laughs> right? Um, and we could even talk about what does sin even mean to say Jesus is without sin. But, um, but th the thing is that with, if Jesus is an actual first century Jew, which he has to be, right? If Jesus is less than human, you don't have the Christian view of Christ. Mysteriously God and man. Mysteriously, no one understands this. No one can articulate it. But the fact is that Jesus was a first century Jew and was a part of that world. And that wasn't an accident. That's, that's who he was. So, so in other words, I mean, to put it in a way that, again, may not help everybody, but Jesus of Nazareth was fully human, and in that, Jesus was limited the way all humans are limited. So, for example, I mean, I, I, tell, I ask my students, do you think Jesus knew French? And they sort of laugh, and I say, no, I'm serious. Do you think Jesus knew French? Do you think Jesus of Nazareth understood quantum mechanics? Do you think Jesus of Nazareth knew what a slider was on the outside corner? Right. You see my baseball stuff. Back there, there you right? go. <laughs> and, and the thing is, like, my answer is, is an enthusiastic no. He knew none of those things. Right. How about the exalted Christ? OK, well, that's different. Right. We're, you're, you, you can't flip back and forth between, you know, pre-resurrection Jesus and post-resurrection. It's like a different thing happening there. And then the exalted Christ and all that. It gets really, really complicated. So I think just picking on Jesus as sort of the trump card that answers some difficult, difficult questions is, I think, actually to not understand Jesus and the complexities of dealing with this figure in history. Yeah, and it won't help your friends. I understand that, <laughs> but I'm trying to see th to express things the way that I would. In other words, I can't answer that question based on the premises that have led to that question originally. Yeah. I have to basically undermine the premises and say, your question isn't a good one. Yeah. And here are the 15 reasons why. And we can talk about all those things. I know where you're coming from. You want to be able to trust Jesus in the Bible, but God doesn't make it that easy for us. Yeah. Actually, I think the answer is better and bigger and more wonderful than just finding chapter and verse, and that settles all your issues. If it did, we wouldn't be talking. We wouldn't be have a podcast like this. <laughs> Yeah. The reason you have a podcast like this isn't that you're screwed up. 
you might be like, I don't know, but not about this, right? We're all, we all have problems, but the reason why people talk about this and have talked about it, the reason why there are seminaries and Bible colleges and yeshivas and, and home Bible study groups is because questions come up and these things are not as clear as we'd like them to be. It's, it's about, and, and being a Christian is not like, I have all the answers, now I go forward in life. Being a Christian, part of that means working through these issues as you live. And I'm just betting a lot on the fact that God is not having a problem with that. Like we can't go past our humanity. Yeah. And I think that in a way that that approach is, again, it is just more, it is more of a, like a journey than just this destination kind of thing that once you arrive to the answers and the thing that makes this like, like you kind of mentioned, it makes this difficult to answer some of these questions is every person has a different starting point leading to the answers. And so like Mm -hmm. some people come from a more fundamental background and others come, which, which makes it very difficult to kind of deconstruct some ideas. And then for others, they didn't grow up in a background like that at all. And so it's just kind of like, you know, working through those things. Um, so I had a conversation. And they might be more. They might be more strident too. And yeah. the thing is that everybody has a story. There's a reason why people. And you know, we can ask that question of other people, like, "What's going on here?" I mean, help me understand a bit more about yourself. Sometimes I would like people to ask me that question too. Well, Pete, you're saying something I think is wrong. Well, ask me why I think it. Ask me how I got to this point, and then we have a different kind of discussion because I have a history too. We all have a history, so yeah, for sure. I had a uh, so I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who is he currently lives in Italy. He's doing he's with a missions organization. I'm not going to drop his name because he asked this question, but um, so he wanted to know. Uh, he listens to your podcast. Uh, do you have any advice on like, and this is, I think for anyone that may be a pastor and I know y'all are doing some stuff. I think it was, was it pastors for normal people or something? Right. Right. Yeah. So I think this question kind of goes along those lines, but um, do you have any advice on like, you know, as people are wrestling with these questions that are in ministry or, or, or that they, that starting point 10 years ago when they began this, their career right now is could be completely different. Um, Advice on teaching others how to like, read the Bible, um, yeah. which obviously that's a big question. But um, for me personally, you know, I do student ministry and I want to help because I think that these questions are important. And I think that um, I don't want to just push off questions. So, oh, no, you know? no, no, no. I mean, and the thing is, they, they, they can't be answered quickly. Yes. But they still you need to help people go on a path to be able to think through these things. And that's different for different people. Like, you know, a college kid that doesn't come from a Christian family has one set of issues, but somebody who has to go home and face their parents, you know, and explain to them why they don't believe X, Y, or Z anymore. That's a difficult sociological kind of thing. Somebody who's been a pastor who went to seminary and is trained and has been in ministry and 10, 15 years go by and they just start thinking, they've been thinking all along, this just isn't right. And they finally can articulate it. So what do they do when there's money involved, right? Yeah. When they're, they're livelihood. And I totally understand that. So I think um, like on a personal level, I would say you can't undo what's happening. You have to see it through. And sometimes it's a matter of like reading the Bible with a good study Bible. I have 
on my website, I have a couple of blog posts on Bible studies that I recommend that actually give a lot of helpful information. Um, finding communities, either virtually or not, of people who respect the fact that you're on that journey and you don't have to hide it. You know, at the Bible for Normal People, you know, my website, we have a Slack group where we have hundreds and hundreds of people on there exactly in that situation. I'm not advertising. I'm just saying that these kind of communities exist, right? Mm -hmm. Where people can be safe there in ways they can't be elsewhere, right? Just so they can just not go crazy and just talk about stuff. So, you know, there, there are like personal psychological dimensions. There are also professional dimensions and community dimensions and all that kind of stuff. So, but I think finding people that support you is very, very important to do. Cool. And sometimes like that. that's the hardest thing to find too, unfortunately. But Yeah. Well, I think part of the reason is because people don't feel like they can safely ask these questions without getting lambasted or potentially losing a position, um, right. which is kind of a shame because it should be, you know, the church and faith, you should be able to be spiritually honest, you know, and just, you should, that would be nice. And um, to sort of just let people go through a process sometimes, but we clamp down real fast sometimes, don't we? And uh, that's why they sort of go behind dark doors. It's almost like you're buying drugs or something. You're trying to find somebody to talk to, right? Um, but that's why, you know, we, we do that sort of thing. And there are other people that do that sort of thing, too. It's just the need to build new communities is very, very important. And people are doing it virtually. They're doing it live as well. Yeah. So, you know, on top of that, with, you know, people are being informed new communities and looking for new ways to practice their faith. Um, so I, you know, a lot of people my age kind of are, and people in general, I think are beginning to question what the status quo of Christianity uh, has been for like the last, I say 60 to 80 years, but I'm sure it's been way longer than that. Um, where do you kind of see this going? Cause you see the movement right now of the whole ex evangelical thing going on and, and, and yeah. all that. Um, and what kind of alternative do you see for those who want to continue practicing their faith within Christianity in a new way? And I, and my thing is, I think that you can still follow Jesus and practice your faith, um, and not claim to be an evangelical. Oh yeah. I hope, hope so. Because, <laughs> you know, most of the Christian world is an evangelical, not, yeah. not in any sense remotely like it is in the American scene, but even in the UK, being an evangelical is a very different thing than it is here. So. Um, but yeah, I think that's, I, I think about that a lot and they get that question a lot. I'm never quite sure how to answer it because I just think it's going to keep going like it's going. I, I think we're sort of in mass deconstructive mode, yeah. at least in America. And where's it going to go? And I think we're already seeing where it goes. It goes in several different directions. There are people who are attracted to a more historically liturgical form of Christianity, but be it Episcopalian or Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic, something that bypasses, and I'll put it this way, it bypasses the apologetic dimension of a lot of evangelical and fundamentalist churches. Like we're right, everybody else is wrong. Now, every, de every denomination sort of thinks that they're right, everybody else is wrong, but there's, there's a historical depth in Roman Catholicism, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and also in Episcopalianism, that I think is giving people a sense of um, deep tradition and even mystery, the mystery of God and the mystery of faith. And I think those are really 
I see that sort of happening. People are coming to terms with just very different ways of being Christian that have actually been around for a long time. And I, I find that very encouraging, and I think that's going to keep going. And that's what, you know, when people, so, sometimes people leave, and there's a lot of anger involved, and they sort of stay in that anger, which, again, I understand if you feel like you've been spiritually abused, which happens a lot in conservative circles. But there are other, are other iterations out there, and I think people are finding them, and they just land in very interesting places. Yeah. So I want to ask kind of two last questions. Um, what approach, so, you know, we've kind of talked about the Bible, we've talked about some doubt, we've talked about the present state of Christianity. Um, mm-hmm. So for the person out there that's just listening and they are struggling with all of these things and, and what often happens is that doubt comes in and, and that's not a bad thing. Um what approach or advice do you have for someone that is just beginning to like really doubt, really question, but they want to like maintain their faith um, mm-hmm. and move forward in their journey of faith? I think it's a lot of pressure to be in both places, you know, to experience doubt and then say, but I want to retain my faith. Yeah. Um, I think probably the first thing I would say is I say this a lot, but I don't get tired of it this is a normal process and it's a very dark place. It's a very frightening place, but without that, you don't actually grow. If, if your faith stays the same and very stable and doesn't change, you're probably not paying attention. And there's just so much in history about, you know, how normal it is again, including within the Bible, Job, Ecclesiastes, Lament Psalms, things like that of people having real crises of faith where nothing makes sense anymore. And that is the first step to a deeper understanding. You know, I I put it this way, you know, I'm having doubts about God. And it may not be that, you know, you feel God has left you. It may be that. But it's more your ideas of God are being challenged. And we all do this. I do this myself. We all equate our ideas with God, with God himself. And I think part of these moments of real doubt and real stress and real tension is God and our thoughts about God are getting decoupled. And those thoughts get thrown away. And you say, well, what do I believe? Well, there's God is still there, but sort of like, I hope this is going to come across sort of off stage a little bit. And you have to go through a process of unplugging, of detoxing almost, and then moving on to something else. And I know that's really hard to hear because it can't be replaced with something quickly because then you just, some false sense of security is being taken away and something else just put into its place. I think this is all about learning what it means to trust God, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. And sometimes that has to happen by having our thoughts about God shattered, which sounds really like it doesn't make sense, but I think it's, it's a very, very true. Yeah. I find that, I find that helpful for, for even just, you know, my own journey of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously your books and the, the Bible for normal people podcast and all the resources you put out, we want to point people to those. Um, but do you have any other resources uh, that you feel like are helpful for people as they kind of, 
you know, rethink the Bible, rethink their faith, and they're kind of just journeying. Oh, obviously, yeah. you have quite a few yeah. books behind you, but, you mm. know. <laughs> no, no, whatever. Um, I mean, I can, again, not all these will necessarily be helpful for other people, but, you know, I, I've benefited a lot. I mean, probably the two people I've benefited from a lot over the past 10, 15 years are Richard Rohr. And if you don't know who that is, I couldn't possibly explain it, but just R-O-H-R, just Google it. Um, and Brian McLaren is another person who I've just, uh, I think I think has a lot of wisdom and a calm way of coming across and talking about some difficult things. He just has a book that came out about faith and doubt, faith after doubt, it's called. Yeah, I have it right here. Which is, it's a great book. I mean, yeah. I, I read it last month and I said, I even texted him, I said, Brian, you actually wrote a good book this time. <laughs> But it's, it's just, I think it's just people like that that have helped me. And how did I find them? I don't know. I stumbled on them. So if you're curious, just, I mean, Google things like faith and doubt or just whatever you think captures it and start in a discerning way looking through things. You'll find people who want to undermine that whole idea, but you don't have to read their stuff, you know, just look for names. And, you know, Rob Bell is, I mean, he gets bad press by a lot of people who I think don't really understand what he's doing, but um, I gained a lot from him too. Uh, and again, the list can go on and on and some more esoteric people, but it just, once you start going down that road, you'll start finding partners who can model for you the kind of faith that you're gonna say, oh, I didn't know this was even a possibility. You know. Pete, thanks so much for coming on today and just kind of having mm -hmm. a conversation with me about the good old Bible and just doubt and faith and uh, trying to figure this whole thing out. I really appreciate it. Sure, Blake. Great to be with you, too. Thanks once again for tuning in to another episode of Rethinking Christianity. I hope today's episode with Pete was helpful for you. I hope maybe you got something new uh, and refreshing for your faith from this interview and uh, from some of the things that Pete talked about in regards to the Bible. Uh, if you want to find more of Pete's content, uh, I would suggest you check out the Bible for Normal People podcast. I'm going to post a link to that in the notes uh, in this podcast episode. He also has several books, um, The Sin of Certainty, The Bible Tells me so and his most recent one which we talked about in the interview how the bible actually works and so pete has a lot of stuff out there that i think could be super helpful for you if you're just doubting questioning or just trying to work through your faith or you just want to kind of learn a little bit more about what he has out there so again thank you for tuning in i hope that this episode was helpful for you and until next time this is blake and this is rethinking christianity